kiddos that way. If you thought of questions, make sure you write them down, okay? Make them easy. You up here. <laughs> make them hard. This is my son, Drew, seminary graduate. He's also a pastor, uh, I mean, a chaplain at uh, Denver Health, works in the emergency department. Just give him an update of kind of what you do, what you see there. Yeah, so I work at Denver Health, um, also known as the Knives and Guns Club. Uh, and that is honestly pretty accurate. Uh, we get a lot of uh, really brutal stuff in the emergency department. So what I do there, uh, it's mostly three things. I am always looking for family of any patients. And so if you make it into the emergency room, something happens, your kids come in, your wife comes in, your husband comes in, I am making a beeline for them. And I'm making sure they're okay, making sure they have water, they're sitting down, they're breathing, and then I'm talking them through everything. You know, it's a really stressful situation. Um, I'm also looking for staff. It's a really hard environment, and they see a lot of stuff. And so I'm always just circling like a hawk, just looking for anyone, you know, with the deer in the headlights kind of look or anyone that's like really getting weighed down by what they're seeing. Uh, and I'm caring for them. And then I'm also looking for the people that are actually brought in, you know, on the stretchers and they're walking through the front door. Uh, but I'm usually not talking to them first thing because surgeons don't like it if I elbow them out of the way to, you know, sir, do you need a chaplain right now? And the surgeon's trying to close up a wound. Um, so usually what I end up doing is kind of looking to see, like, what are they going to need later? Are they going to need me to visit later? Are they going to need someone to calm them down or talk them through whatever they're going through or pray for them or any way that I can serve them? The ushers are going to take your questions if you've written them down. So just hold them up. Come on up. and We're doing it this way. They're all going to Kevin McDonald because if you just give it to us, we only answer the easy ones. (laughs) And so Kevin's only going to give us the easy ones. He promised that. question I asked in the first service that I should have asked going forward from the start is, are we equipped to answer every question about God, about spirituality, about the church? Jim? <laughs> want to start this? I thought you were going to answer it. You heard it for yeah, service. Well, I already heard the first question, but you're better at answering We can only answer about God what information he gives us. Now, we can speculate beyond that, which is a lot of fun to conjecture, but it is simply speculation. So, yes. I'm not sure we'll have the right answers, but you'll be able to answer every question, right? Oh, yeah. Is that the truth? Yeah. Hmm. Kevin in the doctoral class I taught. Uh, I co-teach with Don Payne. Some of you have heard him. He preaches here every year. uh, I like to throw him under the bus while they're turning in questions. So uh, he started to talk, and I said, spoken just like a systematic theologian, blah, 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 lots of words that don't mean anything. And he said, I don't even know what to do with that. Help me out, class. And so one of the students said, well, you know, Dr. Howard, often wrong, but never in doubt. (laughs) It was so great. It felt like a game show host in the first, I don't know if I'm like the CNN debate guy or 
you know, the guy on Jeopardy or whatever. But it was fun for me. I don't know if it was fun for you. But yeah. Um, it was a blast. We have questions still coming in, but there's one that came in that was um, relevant for you, Drew. Mm -hmm. um, quotation marks, the hour I first believed. Do you get a lot of family or family members or patients that come to God at the last minute? That's a good question. To be honest, not a lot, no. Um, often people are, I think, in their most vulnerable uh, in the middle of tragedy and, you know, the traumatic situations that uh, they can see in the hospital. And so I try my best to respect that vulnerability that they're in. Um, often people are reaching for what they know. And so that can be a time where people reach back to, you know, church if maybe they went when they were younger. Um, if they find themselves in a really terrible situation like that, then they might reach back to what is already a support for them. Um, but we try to be careful, especially in that moment. Um, you don't want to slip someone something that might be helpful for a day and then come to find out, you know, later on in life that it didn't really, it didn't really sink in and it didn't really mean anything to them. Um, so we meet people where they are. And honestly, everybody's in a different spot. It's amazing to see uh, where people are in their own lives. It's, it's always different. I never know quite what I'm going to see. But you did have one recently. You don't have to give them the details, but that was very interested in faith. Yeah, uh, and it was a treat. Um, he, is, uh, he was raised in a different part of the church, uh, went through years and years of just kind of forgetting about it, wasn't really important in his life, and then uh, had a really, uh, a very serious uh, couple moments, actually, in our hospital. He, uh, technically, he died twice on the table, and he had this out-of-body experience, and he got to share it with me, and we, you know, we processed it together, but it made him question everything that he believed, because he thought, I saw my parents, and I know my parents are dead, and so if my parents could see me and talk to me, and, you know, they were encouraging him to just keep on going and keep on dancing, he, you know, it's this, this massive emotional thing for him, he knew it was real. So he thought, I don't know what this means, but now I got to figure it out. Um, so I got the treat of having a, a walk alongside him and have a whole conversation about what God might actually look like now that he knows that God is real. That's fun. Okay, I'm still going through a lot of these. They're very thoughtful questions, they're, which means they're longer than the first. <laughs> we have a lot more people too. Yeah, it's right. yeah. it takes me longer to get through them. But, and um, these people are a little more, sm they're smarter than the first congregation? Oh, yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. We won't tell the 8.30 guys, but the 10 o'clock guys, they, you know, they have more time to get ready and they're awake. <laughs> Okay, here's one. Uh, if we are created in God's image, don't we have it wrong? Isn't man basically good? Drew, take a shot at that. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Jim paid me to give you the first. Yeah. Interesting one. Am I back at my seminary orals again now? Like... You are. You are. You just graduated, so this oh. is fresh for you. Remember, yeah. it's a long time ago for me. Right. All right. Well, I'll give you time to think. You better have a good answer. Um, I think... Uh, okay, so the image of God is, it's mentioned at humanity's creation, and then we really don't see it again for a long time, all the way up until the New Testament. And so the little bit that we have that talks about the image, um, it's mysterious what exactly it means. Um, it is not exactly just goodness, or it would say that. It would say we're made with God's goodness, um, it's not just our ability to, you know, think and process and decide, or it would probably say that too. So we know we are made to be image bearers of God. Um, that does not necessarily mean 
that we're always good, as we know. I mean, evil's in the world. We do bad things. Everybody here does, except for you. You might be okay. Um, and so, this is my son talking. I to, <laughs> can you say that again? <laughs> I got to play into your ego. Make sure you're safe here. Um, I think the image of God, more than just a, a moral thing, you know, it's not just the source of goodness that God also has, which we get um, from him. I think it is... Um, it's his authority. It's his, you know, we are little versions of God almost, you know, like we, we reflect God uh, in ourselves, we should, uh, to each other and to the world. And we, you know, God created the world and then he put us in it so that we could manage it. We can take care of it. We could serve it and see to it. Um, so I don't, I don't think it necessarily means we're all good. We're always good. I think we were made to be good. Absolutely but the image has been tarnished. And so the work that the Holy Spirit does is kind of polishing us up and slowly bringing us back to the point where we can actually do what we were made for. Good answer. So I gave you the first two questions, so he's way ahead of you, Jim. So you got to get Wait, how many points does he have? Two. Oh. <laughs> I got, got 5,000 my first one, remember? Yeah, that was pretty good. Let's see if you can so get you, that high again. Jim, you get the next one. What happens when we die? We quit breathing. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> what happens when we die? Well, for the believer, Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I mean, it's pretty simple. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's what we do know for sure. Um, different denominations have different approaches to those that don't know Christ. As evangelicals, our traditional answer is, you're lost, but not every denomination holds to that. For instance, a Greek Orthodox tradition, they think that everybody gets a second chance at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, Catholics, they believe that you get a chance at purgatory to correct what went wrong. So it's hard to answer beyond death what really happens. We don't really know. I hope they're right. I really do hope they're right. But what we do know is for the believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord. A follow-up would be, and I'm dragging this from the first service, describe your views on heaven we will experience when we go to be with Jesus. What does the Bible tell us? What does your study tell you? Well, this may shock some of you, but the, the Bible never says you die and go to heaven. That's kind of a theological construct that we've put together. Heaven is always pictured as coming to us. So you see Jesus at the ascension, and what is the uh, what do they say to the disciples? Why are you looking up? He's coming back, same way he came. In Daniel, he's pictured as coming down. In Revelation, the the uh, new the New Jerusalem's coming down. So the easiest way to think about it is Earth. This is our domain right here. Blessed are the meek; they shall inherit the earth. Paul says in uh, Romans four that Abraham was promised the earth. We live on the earth. And so the earth is our domain and heaven is God's domain and heaven comes to us. That's why it's called a new heaven and earth through Jesus. He lives with us. So heaven is where we enjoy God's presence and each other's presence and the earth for eternity and have fun the way he originally created us. Hmm. Got any thoughts on that? I'll complicate it. Okay, um, complicate it. Uh, in Luke, uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the two criminals on either side of him, the two, well, criminals up for debate, I guess, but the two guys on the crosses next to him are uh, arguing 
first one says, you know, if you're the God who you say you are, then call down your angels. Get us off these crosses. The second guy rebukes him, and he says, basically, shut up. And then he turns to Jesus, and he says, uh, when you come in your kingdom, remember my name. And Jesus says, today you'll walk with me in paradise. So I think Jesus gives a, the best answer he possibly could. Um, and I think that paradise, I mean, we're going to be walking with him. I mean, imagine okay. you're hanging on a cross and your feet are broken, your arms are broken, your, your body is broken. And Jesus says, nope, today we're going to be walking together. Today? Yeah. I like that. Why does a loving God even allow hell to exist? I'll throw that out. That's a jump ball. You guys can wrestle for that. You want to start this one? So to you. I think at the core of that question, um, I might be reading into it. Um, the core is why would a good God let bad things happen? Um, and especially the ultimate, you know, idea we have of a bad thing happening is a place like hell. Um, I think our ideas of hell, um, from what we get from the Bible, it's actually, it's a little slim. Jesus doesn't talk about it very much. Uh, and that should be a cue to us. We shouldn't probably talk about it a whole lot. We should know about it. But it shouldn't be our, uh, our first go-to in a conversation by any means. Um, I think the idea that God would make a place where people would suffer doesn't fit with my idea of God. But it does fit with what Paul talks about in Romans. He says, uh, he explains the downfall of humanity. Um, and it's all these statements, these cascading statements where... Uh, humanity demands something and God gives them over to it. And then humanity demands something and God gives them over to it. And so it's not that God introduces this thing to us and says, you're going to suffer now. It's that we say, I know what I want. I want this. And God says, okay, if that's what you demand, then okay, let's see what that looks like. And it just, we get more and more and more depraved and we lose our humanity. Um, and so my concept of hell is not one where, you know, people go to suffer. It is, it's, if it does exist, it is God giving us over, I think, tearfully and sorrowfully to exactly what we're asking for, exactly what we're demanding, which is separation from God and a lack of humanity, a lack of relationship with him. You want to take that one, Jim, or do you want a freshie? I, I would add to it that the, exist, the presence of uh, choice, where you get to choose, is the essence of human dignity. That's why uh, no other religion has the concept of dignity in it. You can read Buddhism, Hinduism, animism, any of them, and dignity doesn't exist. And so the very opening statement with Adam and Eve was a statement of dignity. I'm going to let you choose. And so um, God gives us that choice. What do you do with the ones who don't choose? They were, you know, Peter, uh, he went after Peter. He didn't have a chance to go after Judas because uh, Judas committed suicide. I think he would have gone after Judas as well. But he let them choose. God never gives up on us. We give up on him. And so he pursues us all the way to the very end. And we shake our fist at him and say, no, you know, the hell with you. I don't want anything to do with you. And he says, okay. So, so what, uh, what Drew was saying, I agree with. When you look at all the metaphors for the eternal state for the non-Christian, they're mutually exclusive. They don't work together. Is it the outer darkness or is it the uh, lake of fire. Which one is it? Hell is just the word Gehenna, and that's just the uh, trash pit outside of Jerusalem where they were burning. And so he's using all these metaphors to communicate, you have a choice. 
do you want to live in my presence or do you want to live out of my presence in punishment? You know, they get, so it's the essence of human dignity. You get to choose. I'm smiling because... Yell. Yeah. I'm smiling because the Holy Spirit just backed you right into this next question. We have free choice, but aren't we also predetermined? Ooh. Mm. Jim, take it away. Oh, Jim, take it away. I started the last one. What's that? I said I started the last one. <laughs> you started this one. <laughs> Are you going to finish this one? Maybe. <laughs> okay, there's... <clears throat> Okay, when you look at <laughs> when you look at election and predestination, that's one of the big questions that has divided a lot of the church. Okay? And that comes primarily out of Romans nine and where it says he has decided, you can read it if you want to. But Romans nine is about the the nation of Israel as a nation. I decided that you would be my instruments and you rejected that. So when, you, when you're careful with the language of election and predestination, here's what you discover. Predestination is always applied to the believer. Once you turn to Christ, it is predestined, this is my viewpoint, that you will become conformed to the image of a son. Back to the serendipity prayer, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Philippians 1, I'm convinced that God is, is going to accomplish in your life what he started. So the, the famous serendipity prayer, that uh, there's two sets of footprints, and occasionally there's one. And uh, what is that? So when I carried you, well, there's a better one out on social media, which I really like. What's that line in the sand? That's where I drug you kicking and screaming. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and I think that's legitimate. So predestination applies to the believer. Once you have turned to Christ, it is now predetermined by God that you're going to grow in conformity. Now we're back to the presence of bad things is that God uses bad things to grow our faith and shape it and test it. But then election, as far as I can see, is a corporate plural thing. It's not an individual thing. He has, he has decided that there are going to be a group of people who are faithful. And I don't know who that is. So we've, we've, slice and dice that into individuals. Are you, you know, are you elected or not? And some of these that come out of Calvinist backgrounds are aware of that discussion. But I, I think I followed Dr. Klein at seminary that corporate election and then is predetermined that they will grow into the image of Christ. Hmm. So you do have freedom. God will do whatever it takes except violate your free will. He'll pursue you to the ends of the earth and he'll let Judas commit suicide. Absolutely. I would add to that. Um, I, I can't think of a single place where that kind of uh, predestination or, you know, forethought is applied to somebody not being saved. Um, God has always given chances uh, to everybody. I mean, in Joshua with the Ammonites, he says uh, their time has not yet come because their sin hasn't reached its full potential. And so he's given them time. He's saying, no, not yet. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna wait. We're going to hope. We're going to, you know, there's always this patience that God has. Always. Um, hoping that people return to him. Um, he chases you and all your children and grandchildren all yeah. the way to the end of life. Never gives up. Yeah. Interesting. Um, next not bad, not bad. Next question is about grace. I'll give this to you, Drew. Okay. How do you explain grace to someone who doesn't know about it? 
Hmm. I'm not sure how I would answer it. That's a good question. Did you say you're not sure how you would answer it? Yeah. That implies that you knew how to answer the other ones? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he got you. Yeah. I'd be able to answer all these questions. These might not be the right answer to all these questions. <laughs> hmm. But that cost you extra. I think if somebody doesn't understand the concept of grace, chances are they've experienced it at some level. So before I would give somebody a definition or I would tell them about even, maybe even anything in the Bible, I would probably just look through their own life. Um, Anyone who's had a parent who's ever, you know, taught them a lesson and not let them experience the full consequences of the lesson, Mm -hmm. absolutely has shown them grace. Um, If I think anyone who's uh, ever had a debt paid for them has experienced grace. Everyone, um, there's, there's kind of a benevolence, I think, that people have, often have a sense of in the world that they might not have the word grace for, but they've seen it. Um, the idea of God's grace, I think, is that, that's where a real conversation can happen because it's not, as, it's not as finicky as human grace. You know, we're not always the best at forgiving someone or paying for someone or, you know, uh, restoring somebody without some kind of price or some kind of promise they won't do it again. Uh, and so that's where I think the beauty of God's grace comes in, is he doesn't, he, he doesn't buy our debt, he pays our debt. And then he doesn't have this list of rules that then we have to follow, sometimes like we do with kids, but he, he gives us freedom and he just loves us. And it's so much bigger and deeper than the grace that we can give each other. How do you bring grace into the hospital room? What does that look like? Hmm. That is a good question. I'm going to let you answer, and I'll think about that. <laughs> no, that's when you say, great question. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the de- simplest definition of grace is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, thankfulness, self-control, right? That's, that's because that's who God is. God can only give out of what he, who he is. And the fruit of the Spirit is the clearest definition of who God is. And therefore, that's grace. And you bring those into the hospital room all the time, right? Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're seeing somebody, whether they know Christ or not, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, especially in the hospital, um, I don't bring in the presence of God. God's already there. But I do bring in uh, a person who can have a conversation with them who brings the presence of God. And I bring in the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives me and especially the words that the Spirit gives me. Um, you don't bring the presence of God in? Did you say that? No, he's already there. I can't bring God somewhere if he's already in the room. But you bring him in in a very real way. Yeah. I asked the church one time, Don Payne brought it up. So when Moses sees the burning bush and he said, and he walks over, take your sandals off because you're standing on holy ground. What is the difference between that dirt and this dirt? The difference is God's presence. So you have the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So when you hug your friend, you're bringing the presence of God around them. They're standing on holy ground. They just don't know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the clarification for me is I can't start thinking that, you know, I have God in my pocket. And mm-hmm. so I walk in the room and I say, here's God. You know, I got <laughs> I to realize uh, I'm looking for what God is doing. And I'm following him, pulling me in there. You don't uh, pull out your magic cross, Bible or crucifix or something like that? Well, I do that. Yeah, that helps oh, okay. too. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you have one of those magic crosses? In the... No, I've been waiting for somebody to give it to me. Uh, I know. This question, I remember this question from like third grade catechism class in Catholic Church in Pittsburgh. It talks about the way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. 
How about the people in the world that have never heard about Jesus Christ? Oh, I Christ, love that question. Right? Who wants that one? Jim, you start this one. <laughs> and Drew can add to it. In the Old Testament, God says, if you search for me, I will be found by you. As you guys know, most of you visitors don't. I teach in third world countries all around the world. I'll be in six this year teaching. And the stories I've heard are endless. Uh, I have a young lady who, she's, uh, she's in high school. She's a junior. She's in a remote uh, Himalayan village. Um, never even heard of Christ. No missionaries, nothing. She turns the radio on because she's bored. And it happened one time, an weird atmospheric thing, and she heard the gospel and accepted Christ. Okay? I have another one, a Hindu priest. He, uh, before he made his final vows, he went out and dug a hole and and decided to fast and sit in that until he could be assured that uh, this was real. It was 21 days later, when by now he's really thirsty and everything, he has this this, I don't know what, if it was a vision or a, whatever it was. Anyway, it scared him. He goes running back in. The first person he runs to is a Christian. I mean, the list goes on and on and on from all over the world. God has the power to connect with every single human. That's why Paul can say every single human is without excuse because he's made it plain to them by looking at creation. That's why that's one of the most common ways to start is look at creation. He said his invisible attributes, his goodness is visible. His you can see it right there. And so Romans 1 says, therefore, Paul, every human is without excuse. They suppress the truth. So every human has to say, they don't have a greater probability because they're here in our country than there are in the backwoods of Nepal. I've just heard way too many stories in over 20 years of the weirdest things, how God gets the word out. If you search for me, I will be found by you. So he cares about every human. He made them. Yeah, I would add to that. Um, we we got to be sure to make room for God's creativity. Um, yeah. I think, especially uh, in the evange- uh, well in the evangelical Christian mind, we can think we have to verbally tell someone. I have to look at you. We have to go get coffee or something, and I have to say, "This is Jesus. He died for your sins." You have to say these words. You have to whatever, and like that that can work absolutely. Um, that's important to be able to talk about those things. People will have questions about that. Absolutely. But God does wonderful things. Um, I think people run into God in a multitude of ways, and it's not as simple, uh, usually, as somebody just hearing those words. I mean, everybody in America has heard some version of the gospel at some point, uh, and they're not all Christian. And so it's more than just hearing the words. And I think the more that we look for the creative and the sneaky ways that God meets people where they are, the more we see what he's doing. This next one, so we've been kind of talking up here a little bit. Now I'm going to bring it a little bit more into the practical standpoint. Current generation, 20s, 30-somethings. I've got a 33 and a 30-year-old right now. Um, You know, that generation does not as much as my generation attend regular worship service, member of a church, you know, go to church 50 times a year, stuff like that. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have faith, but how can we encourage them to tap into God when they're not getting that weekly dose that my generation is used to? Drew, I'd love you to answer that one. Yeah, I mean, you walked away from the faith, and look at you, right? (laughs) I don't think I did. Says says pot to kettle. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Um, 
That is a good question. A lot of people my age uh, do have a hard time with church. Uh, with Sometimes at a bigger level, it can just be organized religion. Um, we can have a problem with anything that doesn't feel very authentic and very personal to us. It's very hard for us to engage with generally. So how to encourage somebody um, to grow closer to God, honestly, I think just relationship. I think a lot of people my age, we've turned away from the church because we were in a church at some point and we didn't feel people around us. We didn't, we didn't have people in our lives. Um, the message on the Sunday didn't apply to our lives. The things they were talking about, you know, don't appear around us. But I think having people close to us uh, and people that actually care about us and talk to us, that's extremely important. So to encourage, I think, would really just look like to kind of draw close and show that, that transparency and that authenticity that we really value. And I think the church would, I mean, do really well to think more about that. I think the more transparent we are in the church, the better. The more authentic we are, the better. Jim, any thoughts? It's great. <laughs> it's, his, it's his generation. If, okay, this is dangerous. How many here are below the age of 40? Okay, good. There's a lot. Yeah. They didn't all walk away. And I think you're right. They walked away from organized religion, not their, yeah. not necessarily their faith. And a lot of them are just still wandering, too. Just because they're not in a church doesn't mean that they're not open to the idea. That's I right. think sometimes they're just orbiting a little bit. Here's an interesting question in our, in our times we're already, when there's a lot being examined about different cultures within our culture. So... Mm-hmm. Jim, why do you think the Christian church in America, in parentheses the world, which is well put, but divided into white churches, black churches, Hispanic churches, Korean churches, and it seems to be distant from the vision presented in the Bible? Any guess, idea, perspective? Uh, yeah, actually I have a lot. <laughs> That's a big area of study. When you look at the New Testament, the New Testament itself does that. Okay? You look at all the epistles. They're all divided by ethnic groups. Philippians, or uh, Corinthians are written to Greeks. Romans are written to Italians. Uh, Titus is written to a Mediterranean island culture. James is written to Jewish Christians. Uh, the churches in Asia Minor, those are Turkish people, you know. Um, and so by... The, the, the Bible, the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Greek scriptures, they actually present the perfect and the only true example of, of how to manage pluralism. And so what you find is that each of the epistles represent the different cultures that they're going to. And so they're, they're taking the New Covenant into each of these different cultures and teaching them. It's not until eternity, Rome, uh, Revelation 5, that every nation is together. And so, um, you know, we have, I have friends that are in inner city churches and they're very diverse. We don't have much of a chance of that just because of the makeup. Most of our minority groups are Catholic or Muslim here in the county. And so, uh, depends on where you are in that. You go to some places, I have friends that have all black churches because they don't have Caucasians there. So I think the Bible makes allowance for that. It's far better to have a mindset of how important every Christian is worldwide. So right now, today, I have Christians all over the world that are worshiping. My Nepalese Christians worshiped yesterday because they go to church on Saturdays. So it's, 
God made us different on purpose, and all those nations maintain their distinctiveness in eternity. And that's by design, uh, by God's design, to do it. So I don't, people ask me if I feel guilty because we're mostly a white church. I was like, well, I don't have many options, you know. Honestly, I don't have a lot of big options up here. Um, The Catholic Church has a huge Hispanic community. We have a church over in Frisco that has a largely Hispanic. I'm so grateful for them. And we connect, we talk, we have, you know. So the perfect church is not one that's perfectly diversified. That comes in Revelation 5, eternity. I wish it were different, but it's what we live with right now. You live in a different part of the state. Yeah. And your church is different. It is different. Um, yeah, my wife and I go to New Denver Church, which is in uh, uh, pretty close to Denver, but it's in the Bonnie Bray neighborhood, if you know where that is. Um, so pretty wealthy neighborhood. Um, and for the same reason, we, are, we don't have much of a chance at uh, people from certain socioeconomic statuses or cultures or beliefs coming into our church just because of where we're located. Um, that doesn't necessarily say anything bad about our church. That's just, that's where we are. Um, I would add to that. Um, I think the cultural experience is really important. And there's a reason that uh, a lot of the parables and the metaphors that Jesus uses are parables that poor people would understand in his time. You know, he, he says, if you're planting seed, so if you're a farmer or if you're uh, if you're going to build a house, you know, so you're a blue-collar worker, something like that. He doesn't say, like, so imagine you're a king and you have a lot of money. Like, that doesn't mean anything to them. Um, and so that meeting people where they are, I think often, I mean, there's a comfort in that. There's, if I, uh, or if you, give a, if you give a sermon and you, you know, you address people assuming that they're in a mountain town, well, you would be right here. But if we do that in Denver and we say, well, you know, we go skiing every Tuesday and we whatever, people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Um, so there's a certain amount of just, like, you're going through the same thing. Your culture is going to look a certain way. Um, and I think I would encourage anybody, go to churches with different cultures. That's a ton of fun. You'll see things you never would have thought of. You'll hear verses in different ways that you never would have heard them before. Um, and that's beautiful. But there's nothing wrong with yeah, Our church is not ethnically diverse, but we are economically diverse. Mm-hmm. We basically have two classes here, rich and the poor. Okay, I mean, the middle class here are really struggling with everything they can to survive. So last year we gave... $100,000 through our benevolence fund to help the people that can't afford to survive here. We get 4,500 meals out of our food bank. And so we're very, we're economically diverse. We're not ethnically diverse as a county. Gotcha. We're running on time. So my last question has to do with um, what's the best way we can encourage and support the leadership in our church, pastors, elders, staff, volunteers, what can we do in this direction to help? Honestly, the, big, the biggest thing is to appreciate them and get involved. You know, we don't, and this is not a complaint. We, you don't need to know what happens behind the scenes, if you will. Uh, but the satanic attack, the spiritual warfare that goes on with each of our staff, uh, they get exhausted uh, we're helping people. We love to do it. But some days, you know, I've gone six hours in a row at Sunshine Cafe, people pouring out their hearts, struggling with brokenness. And um, Nancy, I come home and Nancy says, what'd you talk about? 
today with your, your meetings. I, I'm so numb, I can't even remember. And so it's, it's hard work. Uh, staff, I'm sure the staff in the hospital, that's why you have ministry with the nurses and doctors and because we wear yeah. down. We do. So the, you want to know the truth? Just appreciate. Tell Julie, thanks for all the kids running around have a safe environment here. You know, it's wonderful. Uh, tell Leland, thank you for having, building into our teenagers. And, and uh, almost all of our teenagers go on to live lives of faith, but we, it's intentional. We build into them. We have coffee with them, that sort of thing. Um, and it just, it, we get tired. So appreciate it and then get involved. So we're not the only ones doing it, right? So we have always have vacancies, always. We're always looking for people. So find ways to get involved. But in the meantime, thank you for being very encouraging to us because you are. Well, Jim does this all the time, not necessarily in front of a couple hundred people, but all week long he's answering questions like this to you and will continue to do that. That's what he's good at. Thank you for giving us your opinions and your answers today. Can we give them a little appreciation? He's my favorite. <laughs> Thanks for the questions you, you presented. They were all very good questions. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them, but it tells me how thoughtful this congregation is. Let's close this part of the session in prayer. Let me pray over these guys. Lord, we appreciate just the opportunity to come and just talk about you. You're a mystery to us. There are answers, but far more questions. And you know that. And you made us imperfect because it keeps us reaching toward you and struggling toward you. But that keeps us engaged with you. And we know that's part of your intent. Thank you for providing a perspective today. Help us lean on each other for those questions and answers as we look forward to our retreat this coming weekend. And we thank you just for your presence every day in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.